Hey, yo, Kina, what are we doing here? What? <laughs> what are we doing here? Oh, we're divesting from whiteness. Welcome to the Divesting from Whiteness podcast. It's your host, Kina, and I'm so excited to have my friend, Jen Kinney, from the Story Power podcast on today's episode. During this conversation, Jen and I got into the thick of it. We talked about the tenets of whiteness. We talked about what does it mean to have a racialized identity as a white person living in the United States. We discussed the nuances of white complicity within violent systems. And we even got a chance to dig deep and talk about the ancestral knowing that Jen experiences as a white person living in this country. So, Really clear your minds, clear your hearts, and get into it. I'll see you on the other side of the episode. Once you change your thought pattern, you change your your attitude. Once you change your attitude, it changes your behavior pattern. And then you go on into some action. As long as you got a sit-down philosophy, you'll have a sit-down thought pattern. And as long as you think that old sit-down thought, you'll be uh, in some kind of sit-down action. They'll have you sitting in everywhere. Break the chain, break the chain, break the chains. I'll be trying to find a way to break the chains. Say it. be strange, it be strange, it be strange. I'll be trying to find a way to make the change. Break the chain, break the chain, break the chains. I'll be trying to find a way to break the chains. say this, that I know that when Jen and I get together, we tend to talk about all the things and we're going to try our very best. (laughs) We're going to be in our best behavior (laughs) to make this conversation make sense out of our own brains. Because I have learned to translate Jen fairly well (laughs) so we're gonna we're gonna work we're gonna work it out so listen my friend jen is on the line now let me tell you how i know jen and this is how we start every episode with kina's orientation to the people that i bring into the space Uh, these are people that i value that i trust that i care about and i know committed to the work in a lot of ways so i initially honestly i don't know when jen became a part of my radar my nucleus of folks But what I did appreciate about Jen is that she was a white woman who was not trying to be in my face, all right? That's what I most appreciated about Jen. Um, And then we started to do work together on Speaking of Racism, which is the lovely podcast that is owned by our mutual friend, Tina. Uh, I became a part of the board there with Jen and through community, I started to recognize that what informed the reason why that Jen wasn't violating my boundaries is that Jen was someone who was deeply connected um, to decolonizing their life as well. And so there was a similar energy there. So Jen is the tremendous podcast consultant, sound engineer, doer of all things, but also is the creative Story Power podcast. Um, And so I showed up 
on Jen's podcast last year. It was a fabulous, fabulous experience. Go back and listen to that. That's season one, episode three. Oh, episode one. Yay. Okay. All right. Um, and so this is Jen, my friend. And Jen, I have a check-in question for you. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. So here in divest here um, on this platform, divesting from whiteness, we believe that context means everything. And so my question for you today, friend, is what is shaping your life today? That is a big and good question. Um, and you gave me all of 20 seconds of a heads up about this question. Um, I think, you know, I shared something today on Instagram that sort of communicated something that I've been feeling and having a difficult time articulating, but also something that I really want to be a part of creating. And it is a tweet, and I will potentially pronounce her name incorrectly, but I believe it's Aja Monet. And she tweeted, if you aren't careful, you'll let social media and the news make you believe life ain't beautiful and that people aren't doing miraculous things every day to help heal, transform, and shift society. That's good. Yeah. And just thinking about like my role as a woman deemed white, learning to, you know, divest from the construct of whiteness and be a part of movement for uh, co-liberation, like something that I think about a lot is what am I contributing to this work and where am I causing harm? Because I know that I am, and I want to be open and aware of that so that that is another thing that I can take a step back from, learn from and do differently and engage differently. And so, um, yeah, just thinking about like, how do I contribute to consumerism and consumer consumption of trauma porn and black pain? And, and, and where am I at in this process of also building and uplifting? And so I just loved this idea of like the helping, healing, transforming and shifting society. That is something that I'm really trying to focus more on in this particular place in my life right now. Way to start with the heavy shit, Jen. <laughs> I mean, you could have been like, what's shaping my life today is that coffee is on sale at Costco. <laughs> oh. But okay, y'all, this is the episode. This is where we're at, right? Jen, I want to ask you a question that I often ask people who show up on the podcast who are white. Um, and that question is, when did you know you were a white person? But before you answer that question, I'm going to tell you a story you've never heard, which is Ooh. how I found out I was black. Okay. Now, for our listeners who are listening, um, non-melanated, melanated folks, this question might resonate with you differently. And for the black people who are listening, you might be like, what the hell, Kenna? You ain't know you were black. And the thing is, I didn't know growing up that I was a, a black girl um but I didn't know what that racialized experience really meant right so me being black was more like oh like the physiological component of having darker skin or kinkier hair but I didn't know what being black meant in society until middle school uh, I had just moved from New York to central Louisiana 
a town that dare not be named. Actually, I can name the town. Uh, it's a small town called Carfax, Louisiana. It's the site of one of the largest massacres um, and during the reconstruction period, all right? And so it lives up to its name, <laughs> um, especially when I moved there um, when I was a young girl. And there was a guy, and I, and I shared this story on Facebook a couple years ago and people were like floored, but his name was Chad and I made a mistake and skipped him in the lunch line. And I really earnestly made a mistake and skipped him. It was like, like he moved right and I moved left or whatever. And he looks at me and he's like, who do you think you're skipping you N-word? And I never will forget that moment right there in the cafeteria in front of all those people, right? And that day I knew that being black meant something and that didn't and that that something was um was also unsafe right and so that i didn't share that story to like take it to a dark turn i know we took it to a dark turn but i think because of the way whiteness works uh it might be more difficult for white people to think about when they knew or could recognize what that racialized experience of being white meant so the question I'm asking you is, when did you realize, not necessarily that your skin was lighter than other people, but when did you realize like being white meant something? The question, and that's something that I was just thinking about and sitting here, like, what are these moments that I remember even race being mentioned? And there are three really specific times when I recall race being like being race aware, but it was always about another person being black. And it wasn't until about 11 years ago for me where I started to become aware of my whiteness in a way that when I would leave my house, I would feel this sense of something different, you know, and like this awareness that I'm a white person walking in this world. And there are certain experiences that I'm going to have um, or not have because of this. And it really came after I started learning about the history of race creation the history of, you know, just the creation of whiteness and what that meant and how that oppressed and how that othered and, and just brutalized people. Um, and that's really when I became aware, like I'm a white woman walking in the world and I have been able to walk through the world totally oblivious of my, like my race and, and the way that I had been deemed. So you talk about being deemed white. Let's talk about that a little bit. All right. Deemed right. And uh, when I hear you say, you know, I'm deemed as a right person, like I immediately think about like that race ethnicity differential. But could you talk to us what you mean when you say as a person deemed white walking around? Yeah. So I like to utilize that term and sort of distance myself from whiteness as a social construct. So I recognize and acknowledge that race is a construct, but I also understand that probably for as long as I live my life, that is going to be a construct that dictates a lot. And so I don't, you know, I, I think it, it has to do with like me grappling with like, what does it mean to be a person who's white, who's been learning to divest from whiteness and, and even changing my language, like from calling myself a white woman to a woman who's white, you know, it's like this distancing from 
that construct while also understanding that that's not something I can distance myself from, mm-hmm. right? Um, in the larger context of this country and probably the world at large. Um, so that's something that, you know, sometimes I will say. Yeah. I liked, you should watch, if you haven't seen it, Amanda Sills did this comedy show um, on HBO a few years back and it's called I Be No One or something like that. And I really liked it because I like Amanda Sills. Um, but she really did this great little thing where she talks about like, there's two types of people. There are people who happen to be white and then there are white people, right? And so for the people who happen to be white, I think it leans more to those people who like, to your point, are deemed as white people. And so I get that I walk in the world. I have a racialized experience as a white person. I have all of the societal leverage that comes with that, the power that comes with that but I'm not hanging my hat on yes. being a white person. Right. And more specifically, I don't want to use, I don't want to live my life relying on whiteness as a system. Um, I don't want to further implicate myself in a white supremacy culture that exists around me. Absolutely. But how hard is that, Jen? Hmm. Like how hard is it to, and I feel like I've told you this story. I could have sworn I told you this story. I should let you talk. This is your, <laughs> but, go, go. you know, I actively stopped subscribing to whiteness in 2016. Yeah. Um, I had to pull it out in December of 2020 for an issue I had with my car insurance company. Right? <laughs> Did I ever hysterical. tell you that story, Jen? <laughs> no. I feel like I would have told you that story. Like, basically, long story short, my car insurance, they were like, you wrote us a bad check. And I was like, no, I paid for it with my credit card. The system showed it as a check, but it wasn't a check, blah, blah, blah. And so I had to keep going up. Like, it was very much like, can I speak to the manager kind of thing? And finally, I talked to the highest person I could talk to. And he started talking to me crazy. And I was like, the most effective way to deal with this. Oh, is I'm going to have to call upon, I will have to infuse this conversation with both whiteness and the patriarchy. Exactly. So I got super, super like submissive, like, I don't know anything, sir, with a penis. And I I code switched. I had to, I felt like I got to sound like a white dumb woman right now to get this thing handled. And it worked, right? I was like, I just don't know. And then I get super Southern too. Like that's me too. So I like, it's like white Southern, like whatever. So I'm like, I don't even know how to use that website, sir. I would never, ever, like it was so full on. And so he immediately changed his posturing and he's like, of course I can help you, sweetie. You, we all have problems. It was just, eh, 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 eh. But when I got off the phone, I looked at my mom and I was like, I'm so disappointed in myself. I was like, I mean, I had to do what I had to do, but you know, it really felt like oh. I had, like, you know what I'm saying? Like it was, it was the first time that not now let me just be clear. And also for the people who are listening, I've probably slipped into uh like um replicating whiteness unconsciously 
all the time. I unconsciously code switch because I code switched for a long time. Although my mm. natural orientation to how I sound is I sound like a 13 year old white girl named Tiffany. I get it. It's fine. But I've done that unconsciously since 2016. But December 2020 was when I purposely was like, mm, let me go ahead and use this thing to get what I need. And so what I'm saying is, if that's hard for me not to rely on it, and I and I and I slip on whiteness like a costume because of a survival mechanism that I learned, right? You don't need the costume. So how much more trickier is it for white people not to rely on whiteness to get through the day? That is such a good question. And that is a really hard question for me to answer because I have to think about like, how do I go through my day? What is my life invested in? Um, I spend so much time dedicating myself to um, engaging justice work. And it, it, it's just, it's such a, oh, yeah, it's a hard question for me to answer. I want you to write it down, put it in your journal, right? Like I need to, because I'm just trying to think of even examples and things like, yeah. Like when you consciously was like, I have to, let me, me, and let me parse this out more, right? Like consciously saying, let me go ahead and call upon the power I have in the hierarchy. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, yeah. And this is something that people who follow my work should know I, I try to make sure to tell people being a white person being a white supremacist and operating on whiteness while those things are closely aligned they are different so when I say someone is a white supremacist actor I'm saying that this is someone who believes in the hierarchy um, believes that they are superior because of the hierarchy and then acts in that hierarchy to maintain the hierarchy right? This is why I feel confident saying Robin D'Angelo is a white supremacist actor, right? Uh -huh. Because for her to create a second book about race means she thinks that her thoughts about race is superior, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I feel like I sent you that article today. She you got $12,000 for showing up in the Zoom and then it's refused ridiculous. to do a Q&A, right? So Robin thinks that she has superior intellect about racism. And that's why she keeps putting herself out there as a racist, like a racist, a racism, anti-racism educator. Right. That speaks to me of white supremacy because you're wanting to maintain the hierarchy. You want to maintain your place mm -hmm. purposely because you think you deserve it. Whereas people who are acting in whiteness may not recognize that the hierarchy exists, but they realize, uh, they may not recognize that they may not name themselves as being better, right? That's the work of a white supremacist. But they recognize the hierarchy exists and they lean onto that hierarchy and maintain it for their own profitability. You see what I'm saying? So right. those things are really similar, but they differ, right? So mm -hmm. your average white person may not actively be a white supremacist. To be an active white supremacist is to know about the hierarchy, to insist on keeping that hierarchy available, and then to do things to make sure that Kina stays beneath you, right? Right. I don't, honest, that's not been my experience of most people, to be fair. But most people are operating on whiteness, which is like, 
Let's fall in line. Let's continuously make sure that I'm doing all the things that make me look good in society, right? And then it's right. really following those tenets, not being transparent about failure, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're constantly falling back on um, like logic and linear thought, uh, resisting by like resisting um, the in between the, the liminal spaces of our lives, all of those tenets of whiteness that we talk about. And so I'm okay with the fact that you can't answer that question, but I'd love for that to be something you think about, which is when's the last time I've actively called on whiteness to maneuver life consciously, because I think it may happen unconsciously a lot. Yeah. But consciously when you're like, Ooh, right. Mm -hmm. Um, I do a lot of talking, but it also but I love me, all the talking. I, I know, and this is not this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not this is not this is my podcast. <laughs> I know, which is why you get to talk. Uh, but, I'm Oprah Winfrey. But something that I'm thinking about, like in because I'm constantly trying to be aware of and thinking about like how yeah. am I functioning in whiteness, right? And so, yeah. you know, my tendency is to go for this perfectionism and uh, performance. Yeah. And, you know, being driven. And I would say that last year after, like in the wake of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, I went into this like spiral of, I just have to post more and more and more. And if I post enough and I say enough and I do enough, I am going to get people to understand. They're going to see it. Like I wasn't posting trauma porn, but I was posting at a frequency and with an urgency that I really had to check myself and to realize like, this is whiteness, you know, this is whiteness propelling me in this motion of like, I've got to do more. I've got to do good. I've got to tick off these boxes. If I just figure out how to do this, I could change things, you know, and, and just being heavily invested in that. And in that, just creating and adding to the consumption of Black pain and trauma. And so that's something that I've been very aware of and trying to be constantly thinking of. Like every time I go to post, how am I approaching this? Why do I feel like I'm qualified to speak to this? Am I qualified to speak to this? What is my intention here? You know, where is whiteness showing up? So I think it shows up a lot in a lot of ways. And it's, it's more about for me, like just trying to lean into and listen to like, where is this really rearing its head? And and how can I heal this? Because it's not even, it's not about the to do's, right? It's Mm -hmm. not about like, learn what I should do and learn what I shouldn't do. It's about, well, why do I do this? And what's the shame or the, the pain underneath this? Where's the trauma in this? You know, and like, how do I heal that so that I stop perpetuating these systems? So that's something that I've been trying to think about more. And that's across the board, how I'm parenting, how I approach education, how I approach issues of like just justice and things that are going on in my community. Um, And something that I was thinking about when you were first asking the question that has been a helpful tool for me is reading Miriam Kaba's um, We Do This Till We Free Us and really leaning into abolitionist teaching and learning more about restorative justice and practicing that. Because then there's the other side of that. There's learning where I am showing up in harmful you know, ways. 
But then there's also building a new pathway, a new neural pathway of doing things. So when somebody does something like I had an uh, altercation of sorts in my um, driveway where I really, really probably needed to call the police, but I wasn't going to call the police because I'm not going to do that. We're going to look for alternative solutions and really live into this, um, this desire to abolish these systems and these ways of thinking. Recently, parenting. How am I parenting in punitive ways? I mean, I am a punitive, punitive parent. Like that is my, I, I can do that. Stepping into what does it look like and understanding that abolition starts in the home. So it's like, I feel like I'm tearing down so much and looking at so much throughout all aspects of my life um, that, yeah, that that's just something that I've been processing through lately. And and when you're doing all that, you don't have time to write a book on racism. <laughs> that was petty. Oh, I, I'm here for the petty because $12,000 for a Zoom call? Mm-mm, nah, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. And where's that $12,000 going? I would love to know. Don't you worry, she's going to update her website and say, I spent... Okay, so you said some really powerful stuff. You always do. I am going to take us down a dark hallway real fast. Because you talk about neural pathways. And I'm about to mess up a name here, but the title of the book is My Grandmother's Hands. And it's by Remy, Remy? Resma, I think. Resma, Resma, Resma. Last I name think. starts with an M. Yeah. Um, tremendous book. I've not gotten the balls to finish reading it. Same. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just started and was like, yeah, yeah. like, yeah, I wasn't ready. Like I need to like grow a marijuana plant or something in my backyard. <laughs> like officers, like, why do you have this marijuana plant? Well, what had happened was that I purchased this book and the only way, <laughs> mm-hmm. right. But you talk about neural pathways. And so what you're talking about is cognition, right? Like the ways that our brains are informed to, Uh, really replicate xenophobia, anti-Blackness, racism, transphobia, all those things, right? And so when people treat the work of justice as a to-do list, right? I say that this is transactional. When people make make it like a transactional, which makes sense because we live in a capitalist society that makes everything a transaction. So why wouldn't seeking justice for others to become transactional? But the to-do list is intense for lots of reasons because it keeps us from focusing on the way that these things live inside of us. And so what does it mean, right? Like two years ago, I gave myself the gift of ancestry, all right? Um, And started working on my family tree and realizing, you know, what does it mean that I'm the fifth generation out of enslavement? And then when I read that book, it talks about the, like the, the ways in which the trauma and that ancestral trauma is in my body, right? And this isn't nothing new because people have been talking about this when it comes to like Holocaust survivors, right? So what does it mean, right? And again, I'm being much more specific here, right? Is if I'm holding the racial trauma that my grandmother who was born in 1913, right? I was in my mom's body. My mom was in her. So I don't know what it means to be a Black woman who lived in 1913, but my body holds some of that ancestral memory, right? Um, And that just blows my mind because when I think about what that means for me, then 
when I think about what that means for the ancestors of the enslavers, right? Shit gets real. Yeah. And for me, that means that white women, particularly I'm talking about white women, um, because what does it mean to be a white woman who lived in the plantation house? Mm-hmm and saw we're not even talking about the ones who did because there were plenty that did harm and violence directly but even to the extent that you were the mistress on the hill Mm -hmm. and you stood complicitly and watched families being torn apart women being sexually assaulted children being violently mutated and you stood there the whole time that's you jen but do you get what i'm saying yeah like what does that mean for white women in particular that's that ancestral knowledge is in your body what does that mean right and for people not to want to deal with that on the surface level i get it because it's scary but like how does one hold that once you realize it's a pop like it's real right how do you hold that and how do you make space for change with the weight of that that's the question Hmm. I know I gave you a lot of things right there right yeah just a lot to process through in my own you know in my own story we've talked a lot about like the fact that my mother was first generation from Poland here and so I had a very clear connection with um, my like mother's side her ancestral side and people Mm -hmm. But my father's side, not so much. There's a big question there. And one of the things that I really sought to do um, probably about five years into my journey was to really get in touch with and figure out like, where is my ethnicity? Like I've always claimed my Polish side. I've always known that. My father raised us to believe that we were indigenous. And so I always identified heavily with that. And I went on this journey because I'm like, I want to know, are we really indigenous? Was this some thing that my father needed to believe? And, and, and maybe he heard it in his family lore and they needed to make this up and hold on to this, you know, moving forward. But there's a big question on my grandmother's side, my father's mother and where her ancestors come from. And so as I have, you know, been digging into that, that is a question that I have. Like, did I have ancestors who enslaved people? And and what would I do with that if I discovered that? And I would go back to um, like the early days of me learning about our history and the creation and construct of whiteness and just the evil and depravity that exists in like the soul of whiteness and how that is just something that's carried from generation to generation. And for me, like the thing that I try to do is be very open to hold space for grief Mm. and truth and being able to lament that, whatever it is. And something you said a little bit earlier um, that it just resonates a lot with me is this idea that um, like there's healing and transformation available, but in order to heal and transform, you have to be able to get honest and Mm -hmm. you have to be able to deal with truth. And there's so much in our, in our world today, in our country today, where people are refusing to engage reality and truth. Talk about it. And the thing that makes me really sad about that and frustrates me is I understand that that is a barrier to healing. So there are people in the world who are doing the work to heal And those are my people. And that is what I'm endeavoring to um, embody. But I really feel like 
there has to be an ability to grieve and to be open to that grieving and processing. And that is so countercultural for um, whiteness in the United States. Yeah, because you, that would also have to be naming the failures. And exactly, it's not allowed. And I love that. I want to, I'm going to say this again, because I think that's super important. White people have to be able to grieve what whiteness lied to them about to, in order to gain something new. I mean, the whole thing is, you know, you've heard me say this a ton of times, Jen, whiteness is the world's largest pyramid scheme. And we fight the hardest, I think, for the things that we know like aren't true sometimes, like the fantasy, keeping the fantasy alive. And I can think about this in so many different metaphors. This is why someone creates the perfect home with the perfect china and the perfect linen, but they and their partners haven't had a conversation in two years. You see what I'm saying? So sometimes when we realize that we're living in the fantastical, we hold that much more steadfast the lie because mm-hmm. we're not prepared for the reality um part of what will guide and y'all just if you case you haven't can't tell jen and i have these conversations in real time all the time right (laughs) and so i think a year ago maybe jen i was like what happened well i feel like it was a much more aggressive conversation when i was like what happens after whiteness right uh you all need to prepare create an exit strategy right Mm-hmm. Sign um, me up. <laughs> yeah right so like what does it mean having that ethnic background you know um and how does that correlate to creating that exit strategy I feel like that's something that has rooted me and I realize that there are a lot of people who are white who don't have what I have in that regard right and that that has to feel uh, you know I can only think of the side of my grandmother on my father's side that I don't have answers for and I it, like there's an emptiness there like it feels empty and and I'm curious about it and I wonder about it um but having that attachment you know people spoke polish in my home we cook polish food we continue to keep the traditions alive in our household you know for holidays and these different things Um, So I feel really fortunate to have that. And I feel like that has been a very helpful tool in my healing process, because very early on, when I went to this get your people event, one of the um, first things that somebody said is white people, you need to get in touch with your ancestors who are people you can draw strength from abolitionists in your ancestry, potentially, you know, and like there, you have to have something that you can connect with and that you can identify with. And I remember just kind of thinking like, that sounds strange to me. Like, what are they talking about? You know, and talking about connecting with your ethnicity. Now I understand, but back then I was like, okay, that sounds (laughs) interesting. And um, and whatnot, but that has been a helpful tool for me. And, and I think that, um, for a lot of white people, like, I don't know that they're going to have access to that really. Especially if they think white is real. Right. And it's not, I have one last question for you, friend. If this was a country Western song, a country music song, you walked out the door, boots are clicking. What was the thing you think most inspired you to walk away from whiteness? So nobody can see that you're making me cry a little. (laughs) Um, I can confirm that I did not mean to make my friend upset. (laughs) No, I'm not upset. I'm emotionally moved. Um, the, the word that came to mind and the thought that came to mind was love and the people that I love, um, really feeling, I may have to take a moment, (laughs) 
Um, yeah, don't make me cry. Right? Goodness gracious. I know. Like, woo. All right. Um, people love um and not in some like super spiritual hoodoo voodoo sort of like spiritually bypassing way but I think of the people and humanity and I think of the stories and the way that I have allowed myself to be enveloped by the stories of human beings who I've grown to care and love and, um, you know, just being in a place where I've allowed myself to feel as much as I possibly can as somebody who will never know what it's like to be a black mother of a black child going out into the world, but to sit and lament with, to feel pain with as much as I can. Um, and in that really feeling like I have touched the, just the depravity and the lie that whiteness is, and then having a taste for what could be and having a hope for what could be because of my relationships and my friendships and my community. And just to see the beauty of building something new and having the courage to break down these systems that have been oppressing people, you know, like it's, it's a whole picture for me in terms of why I would walk out that door with my boots on, you know, and just like, see ya to whiteness. Yeah. Thanks friend. Thank you for that honesty and that transparency. Um, you know, whiteness may let you, no one will, whiteness will never let anyone win. It wasn't designed for that. And that's something that I had to, to reckon with in my own life. Like I can't out white my blackness, no matter how I try. And I tried very hard to do that. And I can say that immediately now. So we're at the part of the episode where I tell you what's shaping my world today. So I make it really dramatic. You know, it's like, dum, 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 the build up. <laughs> and what's shaping my world today is really standing firm in the sense that I deserve safety. Um, and after 40 something years of life, what does it mean to, to, to believe that? Because I think we say things, right? We say things rhetorically. We, we say freedom and liberty, all those sexy things. But what does it mean when we really start to believe that we deserve those things? And so I've been grappling and I mean, you know, you know, some of the things I've been challenged with recently. And so really, but sometimes then it's a day to day. Like I literally have to tell myself every day I deserve this safety and I deserve this wellness and this care. And so what's shaping my life today is really sitting on that and affirming that, that I don't have to earn safety, but these violent systems would have us feeling like we have to earn safety and wellness and ease and rest. And in an anti-Black world, I have to earn the right to be human. And so that's what's shaping me the most today is really standing firm on that, despite the fact that there's not a lot of cheerleaders in the stands supporting me in that, you know? So, well, burr, 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 burr. we the bestest. That was my DJ Khalid. <laughs> One of my favorites. <laughs> burr, burr, burr. Thank you, Jen, for being here with Divesting from Whiteness. Uh, this is an interesting take because usually if you are black or brown, I would tell people how to find you. But <laughs> y'all don't need to be looking for Jen. Right. <laughs> y'all should, though. I will say that. 
I just, I amused myself. Y'all should check out Jen's podcast, though. Jen's podcast. Jen is not a racial justice scholar or educator or racist educator, all right? She is out here in these streets gathering white people left and right and has an amazing podcast. Tell the people about your amazing podcast, Jen. Well, the podcast is um, really just a space for people to come and share their stories because I believe that story is a sacred space and that when we enter into it with one another, that it bridges gaps and, and moves us closer toward our shared humanity. Um, and I love talking to people and hearing their stories and having Kina on. <laughs> you cite me when you say shared humanity. I know I can't trademark that, but I feel like that's my thing. And, you know, I'm the queen of shared humanity, but on my Patreon, we do work about figuring out how to get to shared humanity. So if you want to find out more about Jen and if you want to start Jen's life join my Patreon (laughs) if you want to be Jen's friend join my Patreon and then you can be best friends I y'all okay this is probably horrible Jen's gonna ask me to edit this out later but there are so many people that I'm like I'm gonna hook you up with Jen be friends with Jen right and so (laughs) I'm like "Ah." I I know I'm like Jen here's some more of my friends Get these people out my inbox, Jen. Get them. All right. I will talk to you later. And y'all continue to do good work. Thanks for listening to the Divesting from Whiteness podcast created by my friend, Kina Reed. Kina is a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant and educator. She's also the curator behind the Divesting from Whiteness podcast and platform, as well as the anti-blackness reader platform. Divesting from Whiteness was created to start a dialogue that gives folks tools to divest from whiteness and white supremacy culture. You can find it across all major platforms and remember to do good works.